hello everybody it's Jean Nathan this is Crosstown Conversations and I've got a really special program for you this evening with um, just some absolutely remarkable women who uh, have dedicated themselves to the rest of us to helping the city and um, I want you to listen carefully stay with the program all the way to the end because it, it's really it's pretty powerful stuff um, I will not uh, speak in between the two separate interviews uh, the one about Mary Lou Kristovich who we just lost recently was a preservationist and then secondly uh, Andrea Chen with propeller uh, she'll come on after that so um, stay tuned for both but we're going to start off uh, with a an announcement from Jenna Napoli, who I believe is on the phone. Jenna? Yep. Yay! Hi! <laughs> Jenna is a tremendous artist, really, really interesting artist, and um, she has really done her share for the city also, the founder of Yaya. I don't think anybody in the city of New Orleans doesn't know about Yaya. In fact, I think people around the world know about Yaya because um, Jana really helped get it off the ground and, and get the youth that are part of that program uh, to be heard and seen and their work um, everywhere, just uh, travel the world with them. But, Jana, you've got a very special program coming up this Sunday at Crevasse 22 River House, which is a beautiful art site. It's only about 25 minutes downriver from the French Quarter, and it is in Poitras, Louisiana. Um, uh, right by the river and um, next to a bayou is just a, 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 a site with an unbelievable karma. And, and should be glorious on Sunday for the Duck Gumbo event on behalf of the duck hunters that Jana has been working with for, what, some years, huh? Four or five. Tell me about it. Tell me about how you got involved in this. Tell me about what's going to happen on Sunday. I thought that um, the metaphor for the loss of the wetlands was how the ducks looked on the farm when they brought them in, laid them on the ground with their wings open and their heads bent like ballerinas, and then they were gumbo. And so I want to honor these great hunters who crisscross our wetlands and are there the sentinels to protect us and tell us what's going to happen next because they're on the ground first. So we're cooking for them. And it's going to be a great day, and their families are going to come. And we hope to have lots of people show up to salute them and make a toast to the intrepid hunters of the Louisiana coast. And to enjoy some delicious gumbo. Delicious, delicious gumbo. We're going to have a seafood gumbo and a goose gumbo, which most people have never had. And this is uh, this coming Sunday, and it is from the 28th, and it's from 11 to 4. Um, you know, I'd get out there around midday, folks. That would be the optimum time, I think. And um, not only will you see the beautiful show that uh, Jana has done portraying these ducks and the hunters, both in video and in art that's on the walls, and I'm going to let Jana describe the art, and um, and meet Jana, for that matter, and also meet the hunters themselves, which is such a special thing. We rarely have the subjects of art in 
the audience for an art show. And I think that's something that Jana did that I, I, I really appreciate that you made an effort to bring the people that you were portraying into the uh, venue and to see the work and, and meet people who are coming to see it. Yep. I just, I think that uh, it's the circle, and these guys are all terrific, and they shared with me their catch. Cause you, can't, you can't sell wild game in Louisiana, so everybody just gave it up for a good cause and out of the kindness of their, their hearts, and I want to thank them, and I hope we travel the world with them to speak for us. They're going to be our voices, folks. There's nothing like the voice of a hunter. And, and, and their voices, are, again, are on the videos that um, Jana has um, in, in the um, uh, River House, is what the indoor facility is called. There's an outdoor sculpture garden and an indoor art center, and uh, uh, there's art in both places. But uh, the, the works that Jana has done are, are in the house. And um, I, I um, just want you to call out... Uh, and um, you, you, some of your guys maybe mention some of their names. Just so yes, yes, we have coming in from Kaplan, Reed Castile, and um, his brother who shoot together and their families. And we have Donna and Sardi representing uh, Delacroix, along with our our young hunter Benj, who. Uh, who's on some of the video, and Cliff St. Germain from across the lake. Lots of people driving in with their families. We hope to be have the kids painting some duck decoys for us. It's going to be a day for everybody. And, and Jenna, just real quickly, describe the work that you have up, because it's, it's very different from um, anything else. And, and then I'm going to take just two seconds to describe what else is there, out there, and, and then we're going to um, move on. All right. So I, I painted the ducks as they lay on the ground. Um, they look like ballerinas. They're really beautiful right after the kill, just coming from a heartfelt memory of childhood out on the farm. And they're on thick pieces of wood. Then I cut them out and shaped them and carved the edges, and they're not gilded yet, but they're lacquered. And they're shiny and beautiful, each one like a little icon of... Um, of what's precious about what we call home. Yeah, and our way of life. And, and hunting is not something that I personally um, uh, can do, but I appreciate that it, it's very much a part of the history and the lifestyle in this area. And it's, an, it's threatened. It's threatened by the loss of our marshes. And the species, uh, all our species, whether it's birds or, or critters or humans, are all threatened by the loss of marshes. And I had some folks uh, who are in the, uh, let's say, the bird business uh, talk to me about um, how birds have had to move further up in the state because of the loss of land. And But when they do, they also are moving into areas with less marsh, so it really could have an impact on the total number of um, and species of birds that we have um, in our, our world. And we, we all love our birds. We really do. So I hate to see um, that happen. Um, Shannon Napoli, artist, organizer, um, legendary founder of Yaya. Um, you all will enjoy meeting her personally as well as her hunter friends on um, 
uh, this coming Sunday. That was nice, a little nice accent there for our announcement. Accidental, but nevertheless, a uh, uh, nice little uh, uh, push. So, Jana, I look forward to seeing you and your friends. And um, there's a lot of artwork out there, folks. It's all about migration. It's all about the threats to our species in our part of the world. And, and we really have to focus in on this in one way or another because um, it's a risk that we're facing. Thank you for what you do. 11 to 4, Sunday, across 22, 8122 Sarrow Lane. Uh, but if you put in Crevasse 22 River House, you'll find us. And I hope to see you there. All right. Thank you, Jana. Thank you. See you soon. Um, folks, um, now we're going to begin uh, the first interview with um, Sandra Stokes with the Louisiana Landmarks uh, uh, Association for the State and also Florence Juvenville, longtime preservationist and friends of a very special woman, Mary Lou Christovich. If you don't know about her, you're about to learn about her because she's done a lot for us in our city and in helping us save what we have. And then that's going to be followed by this incredible young woman, Andrea Chen, who is um, horrified at the inequality in our uh, community. And she's taking it on in a very professional and hard-headed way. So um, you're going to enjoy both these interviews very much, I hope. This is Jean Nathan. Stay tuned now. We are um, here today to talk about um, one of the women who played a very, very important role in the history of this city over the past I don't know, half a century, um, Mary Lou Christovich, who um, just recently passed rather suddenly because she was extremely spry from what I understand, working on a book up until the night of her death. We all should be so lucky as to work right up to the end. And um, she was an important person to us and, and an important person to me because when I first came here, I was uh, very much aware of what was going on in the preservation um, universe because of uh, the work of my husband, which was on the historic districts and the bridge and so forth. So um, please introduce yourself, ladies. I'm Sandra Stokes. I'm president of Louisiana Landmark Society. And I'm Florence Jumanville, longtime friend of Mrs. Christovich. So um, oh, tell me in your words why Mary was so important for our city, Mary Lou. She was a powerhouse. She had a rare combination of charm, sophistication, intelligence, drive, that, um, and she was a steamroller, man. She could make things happen, and she did. And, and so how did that express? I mean, what, what were some of the early things that uh, were on her um, agenda, her, her plate, and, uh, and how did that develop? She started off, I believe, with the Friends of the Cabildo, and was instrumental in some of their exhibitions during the 1950s and 60s doing historical research. And by 1971, she had begun working with the Friends of the Cabildo to produce the New Orleans Architecture Series. She was instrumental in the production of the first six volumes in a series that now numbers eight. And these were important because it was the first time that um, someone started to document the historic neighborhoods. And that was the impetus to, for um, people to coalesce around their neighborhoods now and form neighborhood associations. And eventually that, that caused, um, it was a whole preservation movement 
that caused historic districts to happen outside of the French Quarter. Up until then, we only had the French Quarter that was protected. And then this was the impetus, really, for um, protecting our other neighborhoods and realizing their importance. They really became the Bible for the neighborhoods of New Orleans. Yes, and they got the average person interested who may not have realized before that the house or the neighborhood that they lived in was of such significance. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they detailed what was significant about the architecture. Yes, and with pictures. Visualizing. That, that's always yes. important is yes. to really understand things from a visual perspective. So, so what impact do you think they had? I think just the fact that we have historic districts and the Historic uh, District Landmark Commission now that's um, really helped to preserve the rest of the city. I mean, we always talk about the Sliver by the River and the historic districts. It's not just the French Quarter, it's the rest of the city as well. And I think, in a way, she's responsible for the protections that are in place right now. How do you account for um, her energy and her success? I wish it had rubbed off on me to a greater extent, but I can't improve on what Sandra said. Her brilliance, her uh, gift for putting the right people and the right project together. She really had a knack for that. She saw people's strengths and capitalized on them. She brought people together too. Yes, she, she did. She was a tireless worker. I mean, she wasn't one that just assigned she also got in there and worked. We've been working on this book with her um, that's going to be published through Louisiana Landmark Society for in honor of the tricentennial in the Bayou St. John neighborhood, which hasn't been done in the architectural series. Remarkable that it hasn't been done. And, yeah. Yes, and um, uh, Florence is also working on it. We have um, Stephanie Bruno and Hillary Irvin are going. Uh, Irwin are going to be the uh, the authors on it, and Robert Brantley is doing the photography. Uh, so wait, we're talking about the impact of the books mm -hmm. and the work that she did on the books. And um, let, let's talk for a minute about the, the new book that's about to, that she was working on. You know, you, you, you were just talking for a second about um, literally how she was working up until the last night before she died. That's right. I had worked with her on Garden Legacy as a sort of research and editorial assistant, and we worked well together so that even though I wasn't part of the original plan to help with Gate, Gate to New Orleans, when she found out a couple of months ago how sick she was, Mary Lou pulled me in to help her with the editing. And it was feasible because we did have so much experience in working together. The day before she died, we worked for four hours at the computer until the nurse sent her to bed so that she could elevate her legs. And the next morning, the day she died, we worked for an hour and a half on the book with me reading to her the text that other contributors had written and having her let me know if there was anything that she thought should be revised. So until an hour and 15 minutes before she died, she was working on this book. That is just, that is truly a testimony to what you both have been saying about her drive. And it's that drive that really um, 
both preserve so much, raised awareness of what's so important to us in New Orleans, and kind of, in, in many ways, has set the stage for the future. And that's kind of what I want to talk about, too. So let's talk about the last book, first of all. Well, she, she had um, graciously was producing this book through Louisiana Landmark Society. We're going to be publishing it. Um, it should be coming out in the summer, and it'll be part of our tricentennial. Um, she wanted to cover it, particularly now in the tricentennial, because Bayou St. John was the gate to New Orleans. It was how... It would get to Louisiana, actually. It was how trade started. and um, The Native Americans showed the anvil, right. had to enter the city from the lake through the bayou. Right, right. And up until then, trade could only go downriver. Now we could go a different route up through, up and up, up Bayou St. John. Um, but it was also that this neighborhood, the Bayou St. John neighborhood, had not been covered yet in the architectural series. So this was a great opportunity to to start to to cover the area as well as talk about the bayou and the importance of the bayou to to Louisiana. How, how would you express that? The importance of the bayou to Louisiana. Yeah, I think it was essential to you take that. You you've read the you, Well, they New Orleans would not have been where it is if it hadn't been for Bayou St. John. Uh, it was a water route where there was no other. So that uh, we owe our location and much of the way we developed to the fact of Bayou St. John. You know, it's so interesting that Bayou St. John is really, in many ways, not only the heart of the, of the development of the city, but it's also part of the cultural heritage in that the Mardi Gras Indians consider it to be kind of at the heart of their culture, because mm -hmm. that's where so many of the tribes um, meet on Mardi Gras Day and begin their um, second lines. And to this day, second lines come from there. So it, it, it crosses all um, groups in the city. It, it's, it's significant to all of us. I, I believe that's true. And um, we're really excited about the book. Um, in fact, last communications I've had with Mary Lou was she had left when she knew she was as sick as she was, she left instructions, I, trust me, Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Everybody's moving forward. It's going to happen. And um, we've all been kind of uh, stepping in now and making sure that we are fulfilling every wish that she wanted. Wow. So you, she, she's, she laid the plan out. She laid the plan out. She's, she's the, the driving force behind this. Yes, so, right. so let's talk about some of the other things she worked on, the cemeteries. Well, that's an interesting story. She actually went up against the archdiocese. Of New, which, of New Orleans, which is a which is a pretty big thing to well, have done. Not everybody would take that on. This is true, but it was when they had decided that the wall vaults at St. Louis Number Two needed to be demolished, and she was would absolutely have nothing to do with that. And um, ended up, the interesting part of this is not only did she form Save Our Cemeteries out of this fight, she ended up raising lots of money. But more than that. She raised awareness to how important cemeteries are to our culture and our history and our architecture. I mean, they are a piece of the physical environment for New Orleans. And um, I think we can credit her with the fact yes. that they're, they're still here and in as good a shape as they're in. She formed Save Our Cemeteries virtually overnight with her husband, who was an attorney, 
of doing the paperwork, which they sent to Baton Rouge by a morning Greyhound bus, had people in state government waiting for it to give their approval and send it back on the 9 o'clock Greyhound bus that night. This is a fascinating story. She also set the original dues of Save Our Cemeteries at $2 because she wanted membership to be affordable for everyone, including the craftsmen, the artisans who worked in the cemeteries, the bricklayers, the, uh, the marble cutters, and so on. She wanted them to be able to participate. This is something I remember about her in the Save Our Cemeteries that it really was so broadly based. That was an important, um, I think that's, that's really important in the preservation movement in general, that it embrace and welcome and inform literally everybody across all lines. That's still a job. That's it's still a job and it's still, but you know, part of our mission is to embrace, you know, to protect not only the architecture but the culture and to educate and, and culture goes across all lines. and you know, trying to get that common ground, but also to, to realize that preservation is economic development, especially for New Orleans. It is the, you know, tourism is our number one business, and the historic and architectural areas and are our draw, and it's not just the French Quarter. We've got to make sure that we preserve the whole city. Um, for one thing, we need to have um, we have to disperse the, the, the tourism because you can't have nine million people on the French Quarter. You've got to be able to disperse them around the city. And, and a lot of the, um, the preservation materials that have been put out by the Preservation Resource Center about the different neighborhoods of the city have been an important part of helping the tourism industry understand the other neighborhoods because they really started out pretty much promoting the French Quarter, um, the hotels, the restaurants, and not necessarily all the neighborhoods. But increasingly over the years, we've seen more and more about the other neighborhoods and, and, and seen visitors coming into those other right. neighborhoods. I watch them in front of my house all the time, right. and I live in Treme. Yeah. What, um, besides the cemeteries and the books, what else do you uh, consider her major achievements? Those are probably her two major achievements, but she was involved with a great many other preservation organizations as well. Along with Rulak Toledano, she founded the Preservation Resource Center largely because she and Rulak were getting telephone calls at home in the evening during dinner from people who had seen the first couple of volumes in the New Orleans Architecture Series and wanted them to give advice about how these people could preserve their own homes or about the significance of their own homes. And their families, they each had four children, were getting tired of dinner being interrupted every evening. So they said, we have to do something about this. These people need some place to go where they can get information about preservation and that led to the formation of the PRC. You see, I was very, that's exactly what I remembered, that the PRC came out of um, that partially, but also kind of the whole movement to identify the neighborhoods and create the HGLC. 
And I don't know, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, whether HGLC precedes PRC or PRC precedes HGLC. Can you clarify that for me? Do you remember? I don't know offhand, but if I had to take a guess, I'd say that HDLC came first. That's what but I this is too. not definitive. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And she was also a major um, force behind the HNOC, the Historic New Orleans Collection. You want to talk about that a little bit? I mean... I think she, she could be credited with raising the, she could, anything she worked on, she raised the level of perfectionism, of the, you know, just making sure things were done right. She would raise the level of money. She would raise um, awareness. And I think that HNSC was a prime recipient That's of her right. actions and her. When Mary Lou Christovich joined the board of the Historic New Orleans Collection, or perhaps I should say the Kemper and Leela Williams Foundation, which is the parent organization of the collection. It was a very young institution. Its staff, which now numbers over 100, at the time numbered five or six, which I can vouch for because I was one of them. <laughs> she um, was on the board for 45 years, became its president in about 1991, and was very thoroughly involved with everything the collection did. She was instrumental in keeping it financially stable, in keeping it a high-quality institution, in making sure that it did everything up to the high standards which we have come to expect from it. And, and let's just, for people who are not that familiar with the historic New Orleans collection, um, uh, share, share with the uh, listeners exactly what that organization is all about and what it does. The collection is a privately funded museum, historic house, publisher, and research facility. It began as the private collection of Kemper and Leela Williams, who owned the Royal Street complex of buildings, or at least most of it. It has been supplemented. Um, in the 19, beginning in the 1930s, and lived there when French Quarter living was not highly regarded. Many people thought the French Quarter wasn't much beyond a slum, but the Williamses lived there and became interesting, interested in collecting materials about Louisiana. Kemper Williams had a military background, and the story goes that he started by collecting prints and maps that uh, depicted scenes of the battle. From there, their collecting interests grew until after a couple of decades, it embraced all of Louisiana history. The Williamses had no children, and they wanted their materials to remain intact and available to researchers after they died, so they provided in their wills for the establishment of the historic New Orleans collection. Which also is, is, is in, in its heart, in a sense, an archive. Yes, archival materials, books, rare and other. And that includes right up to the present day. Absolutely. It doesn't stop, you know, at the uh, when Louisiana becomes uh, an American state or something. It just it continues to this day. Correct. Yep. New acquisitions every month. 
Mary Lou was on the acquisitions committee for a very long time, religiously attended its meetings, and challenged any curator or librarian or other staff member who uh, wanted to purchase something that she had a question about. She really kept the standards high. Interesting. I heard her described once as the heart of the Garden District, and I would venture to say that she was the heart of just about any venture with which she was involved. her eye oh, on. Nice. Right. Nice. Sandra, where do we go from here? Okay, um, so Mary Lou's gone. Who, who, who replaces Mary Lou, or rather than focus on just an individual, um, the preservation movement itself is still a, a very, very vital part of, of how we develop New Orleans. No, I don't know that, that Mary Lou's replaceable, ever. Um, I think she was the last of the Grand Dames, and that would include Elizabeth Wurline and then Martha Robinson, and now we had Mary Lou, and we were very blessed to have her. And I don't know that we, there's anyone waiting in the wings that has that sort of... But now of, you have a movement. We, we do have a movement. I think it... it, it um, I think as the city changes so much, people are going to look back and see that the preservation of our historic architecture and our culture is really what is our heart and soul. And the more we chip away at it, block by block, building by building, we're losing that. And I think that um, as we move forward, people will start to embrace it more. It's not a, just a high society, upper upper crust thing to do anymore. It's part of a neighborhood movement, and I think that that's really important, that it's diverse, that it embraces the culture as well as the physical environment, and that we understand that it's part of the heart and soul of New Orleans. Describe New Orleans at the end of this century. Wow. I hope. How about New Orleans, I hope. Okay. I hope that we are as diverse, that we do cherish our past as well as move forward, that the progress doesn't take down the past, um, but we do want progress. Um, that we become economically diverse as well, so that we're not reliant on just one industry to support us. Um, and that there is more equity and understanding. Thank you, ladies. I think that you have um, helped talk about the precedent and what happens next. And I um, hope that you're right. Thank you. Thank you. We are with Andrea Chen, who um, heads up the Propeller um, Initiative and Facility. And is very much a part of the young entrepreneurial um, geography of the city and making things happen. And um, I'm very curious to hear from her about where we are in the city from the standpoint of the young entrepreneurs because they're very important to us. Uh, I'm concerned that they do well in the city and that they want to be here and stay here and grow here. And so I, I really want to have your perspective, Andrea, um, on how things are shaping up. So I can answer this question in a few different ways. 
we at Propeller, we work with all kinds of entrepreneurs, not just young entrepreneurs. And so can I give you an answer that's about entrepreneurship generally? And sure. then maybe we can zero in on more kind of anecdotal um, data that we have, or um, not anecdotal data, but more the anecdotes around young entrepreneurs that we mm -hmm. have worked with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think that since a lot of people tell the story of entrepreneurship uh, with Katri Hurricane Katrina as like a mark, kind of like a mark marking point, um, and I think that the story that's been told in the national news media has been that there's been this entrepreneurial renaissance post-Katrina and that it has just entrepreneurship's flourished and entrepreneurs have been part of this, um, the recovery of the city. And I think that's a story that is, that is true in many ways, but I think a big part of the story that hasn't been told is that in the Hurricane Katrina recovery and progress, um, and the Renaissance, so to speak, there's, you know, when we actually look a little bit deeper and we look at the numbers behind entrepreneurship and economic development, what we'll find is that pre-Katrina versus post-Katrina, um, economic inequalities have actually increased, not decreased. And that, wow. and that's, some, that's not the story we typically hear because we hear about, we typically hear about how things are so much better now than they were before the storm and how often people will talk about the storm as an opportunity um, that, that has made this growth um, and progress and renaissance possible, right? And, and I think um, a lot of the data started getting kind of compiled and um, aggregated in, you know, at the 10, you know, when we had our 10 year anniversary. And pretty much every, you know, across, you know, when you're looking at economic indicators, it has shown that we've not been going, um, you know, well, uh, while salaries have increased uh, somewhat um, since Katrina, the disparities between white and African Americans has has um, has actually widened pre-Katrina versus post-Katrina. I suspect that might have something to do with the home ownership dilemma that a lot of um, African American families either lost or didn't, did not get enough money to rebuild, mm -hmm. left the city, or if they came back, they are renting perhaps instead mm -hmm. of, and home ownership is such an important part of. Also, of wealth building. Yeah. And wealth building and having wealth is such an important part of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And we don't often see the two as tied because we think, oh, entrepreneurs are just people who have great ideas and the, you know, the, you know, the grit, you know, to go and get it, get it done and make things happen. And I think, again, when you kind of dig a little bit deeper, you find that, well, in order to start a business, in order to have a storefront, to rent a, you know, rent a restaurant, uh, you know, facility for your restaurant, capital is a big piece of it. And if what you were saying, Jean, about home ownership, um, there's been a lot of data also done, I'm sure you know this around Road Home and how a lot of the insurance money that came, you know, that came after the storm was very, very inequitably um, distributed, right, based on neighborhoods and geographies and primarily African-American neighborhoods did not even get the amount of money they needed to rebuild completely. So I think that's probably what a lot of what you're referring to around home ownership, right? Exactly. So that's just one piece of it. And what we and you know what we've found is that in basically every sector, that kind of activity where things were inequitably distributed happened post Katrina. And so <clears throat> Yeah, because we had so much mm -hmm. more home ownership in places like the Ninth Ward. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought of the Ninth Ward as an area where people were 
poor or lower income, and the truth is um, the m majority of people in the ninth ward own their own homes. That's right. And what does that, what does that mean when you wipe out um, that much, like, equity that was built? And it was also not, o not only was, was it a lot of people had their homes um, wiped out and their equity wiped out, it was a primarily African-American middle-class neighborhood. And so when you take out that percentage of African-American middle class in the city, what does that mean for entrepreneurship? And we may see that as two separate things, but they're actually very related. Right. So, so what are we doing to address that? So I think that there are different organizations working on that, and I think that this is a, this is a systemic problem, right? Because what we're talking about are um, inequities that are popping up in homeownership, in, um, you know, in economic development, in entrepreneurship, in education. So it's pretty much across every sector, every system, you will see the same kind of disparity. And unfortunately, in our city, and for most of the country as well, these disparities break down along, break down along racial lines. So when we think about what are we doing about it, like one thing is not, is not enough, right? Like we, my opinion is that we actually need to be working in coalition with like all the different sectors, with all the different um, industries to move this forward because you could solve one problem, um, specific, let's say home ownership, let's say you solve that one problem, well, all the other disparities still exist in all the other sectors. So, <coughs> and so um, I think just like having that kind of like point solution is an insufficient response to the scope of the problem that we face. So what is a sufficient response? What do you feel needs to happen um, specifically? I understand you're saying it's, it's a number of different ways you have to come mm -hmm. at it. But, but of those different done, ways, right? what do you think are the most important? In entrepreneurship and economic development, which is the area that we are most focused on, um, so there's, uh, um, we've been talking about the idea of like the three C's. It's something that I think um, Mark Morial spoke about as a, a strategy to, um, to de decrease the economic disparities that do exist. Um, and three C's are um, contracts, contacts, and capital. And so in contracts, there, and this is a lot of this was post Katrina as well. You know, you think about the billions that were spent in terms of school construction, right? Um, the billions that are being spent right now to restore a coast. When again, when you look at the data and you think and you look through and see, well, who's actually getting that money? Is that money coming into our local economy? Is it going into, um, are they going to businesses owned by people of color? Um, we have this statistic that is not, um, you know, it's no secret that, um, that, that people have used quite a bit because it's so, um, it kind of just shows you how, how big the scope of the problem is. So in New Orleans, black-owned firms represent 40% of all businesses. Um, and, and keep in mind um, that our population in Orleans Parish is 60% African-American. 40% of all businesses. However, they, they receive just 2% of total business receipts. Mm. So you have, wow. right? So you look at the ratio. Talk about disparity. Talk That's about disparity. 60% of our population, right, is African-American. 2% um, of black-owned businesses actually get the money. That is just horrifying. Right? And so, you know, um, sorry, go back to the question. Is, is, well, what are, what are the, as far as you see it, the priorities oh. for how to address that other than home ownership issues? Right. Okay. So when we see that happening, then we kind of have to parse that, well, then who's actually getting the money? 
right? And where is it coming from? Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, especially post-Katrina, some of the biggest injections of money came from the government. Federal. Like federal. And via state, right? the state and city. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think a big piece of it, when you um, what thinking about the three C's, contracts, right, um, contracts and capital, mm -hmm. the contracts piece, um, I think is is a really big part of it, and just in terms of scale, right? I think contracts can make a big differ difference. Um, you know, specifically government contracting, uh, and the contracting of our anchoring. What is Propeller uh, doing? What is your role in trying to address these inequities in, in the economy? So, we think about this work in a few different ways, and one of the first things that we did was really to think about how are we as an organization potentially perpetuating some of the inequities that uh, that exist? And so we wanted to first take a look at ourselves to get our get our own house clean um, before we started doing work externally. So we um, went through a year-long process where we applied a racial equity lens to our organizational uh, processes and policies, culture, and values. So that included the way we hired, the way we selected our entrepreneurs, the kind of curriculum that we were using in our accelerator program, and the kind of policy work that we were doing, and so um, the kinds of, la the, the words that we use, the language that we use. So the way that we think about it is in a couple different ways. There's one, at one level it's about thought leadership because we believe that a lot of the, the issues that exist are because of you know practices and and mindsets that people have, and we believe that it's really important that we start to shift mindsets, especially in the entrepreneurship, um, the local entrepreneurship ecosystem. And so we've been putting out thought leadership pieces. We've been, you know, putting out the data, the data that we've, um, that I spoke to you earlier about, and we're actually writing an essay for the tricentennial um, uh, as one of the partner uh, partnership companion essays for the Greater New Orleans Data Center. And the essay is about the past 300 years, the um, obstruction and the untapped potential of black businesses. And so that's a piece that kind of goes through really um, kind of fleshing out what are some of the historical things that have gotten us to where we're at. We believe that's really important to understand because when we think about solutions, oftentimes people will jump to a solution before knowing why and how things got to way got to the way they are now, and in order to come up with what we think is the right intervention, we need to really understand our history a lot better. So that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is we've been doing this uh, workshop series in conjunction with a few of my colleagues, um, Sean Barney, Alan Square, and Emily Madero and Liza Callen, uh, and we've been doing these two-day. Uh, workshops around racial equity. And we've been uh, recruiting assistance leaders to come and participate. So our mayor-elect participated in the last one, the two-day session. But for people to go through and, and really understand what are the underpinnings of race um, in America, how does it show up today, what has, what has been the history nationally. And we think that's really important because Sometimes, like in our city, sometimes it's not that easy to talk about race, or when we do talk about race, if you're on two different sides, um, the conversation usually does not go well. And so we believe that in order to even have a conversation, we need to have a baseline understanding, foundation around 
the facts of what, what is and what has been. So those are two ways that we're kind of working at the ecosystem level um, around educating and uh, mindset shift. So let me come back to the baseline facts. Give me a little bit more about sure. the baseline facts that you feel are critical. So when people... Hold on a second. Oh, it's okay. Go ahead. So when people look at the way things are, when people see the disparities, people can come up with all different kinds of reasons for why those disparities exist. And they may not know about the, you know, the policy things that were put in place to further um, further divides and you know further inequities between different racial groups. Um, a lot of people don't know about how the GI Bill. Only you know the people who went to colleges on the on the GI Bill. I think it was actually I shouldn't be quoting numbers, but it was definitely over 90% of the people that went and got scholarship or you know went to school, um, went to colleges and universities were were white even though that was not the makeup of who actually was serving in, you know, in the Army and the Navy. But that's just one example. Yeah, interestingly, just a quick aside on that is that um, what I've heard a lot of people say is that it was after the war with GI Bills and college educations that many um, African-American workers were able to buy homes in the Ninth Ward. But the Ninth Ward developed as a result of, in a sense, the GI Bill. And I'm sure, the thing is, Gene, I'm sure that it's true. I'm sure that it's true. It still represents a small fraction of exactly, the total number of people who got the, exactly, right? got the money. And it was disproportionately, and the reason was because a lot of the, um, a lot of the colleges and universities weren't accepting black students at the time. And so even if you did, you know, technically you were, you were allowed to go to school on the GI Bill, there were very few universities that would actually take you. Yeah. So as a result, that's what happened. And the people who graduated, you know, with you know money from the GI Bill, they became the doctors, the lawyers, you know the um, the accountants that then you know built the next generation of wealth. And so things like that, people maybe don't know. People maybe also don't know about Social Security and who was excluded from that, you know. And so there are all these things. Well, I don't know. Right. And so so they they made a they made a um, um, like a carve out. So that um, domestics and agricultural workers were not allowed to get social security, and at that point in time, I have no idea. primarily the folks who were domestics and agricultural workers um, were the majority of them were people of color, and so that was just another way to exclude certain groups of people from accessing government benefits. And was that a national problem, or that was? Uh, it was national. Another big one is um, the Claiborne, um, you know, in our city, it's the Claiborne Corridor, mm -hmm. right? You probably mm -hmm. know about this one, mm -hmm. about how they, people were building mm -hmm. freeways through primarily, um, mm -hmm. or pr primarily and predominantly African-American, vibrant African-American commercial corridors. So, you know, one of the examples that's comparable to the Claiborne Corridor here is Black Wall Street in Durham, North Carolina. And it was a very vibrant um, African-American commercial corridor. And um, the government c went, came and took that land through eminent domain. And you heard stories of people who got the market value that they, that they you know, were given for their, for their property was so much, was less than what they purchased their, you know, their businesses and their houses for. And so again, it was the obstruction, right, of, um, you know, in this case of, of black businesses so a lot of these things are policies that were, you know, things that were done to people 
that people don't know. And then you kind of look at this situation now and people come up with all kinds of reasons for why certain groups are succeeding and other groups are not. A lot of those reasons that people give have to do with like individual reasons. Like, you know, people aren't motivated enough. People, people just need when to in fact, value. It really boils down to um, institutional policies. Exactly. As one big, one big um, driver. So, so let's, let, let's move on to, um, there were, Do you want me to go through the other propeller things that we're doing? Well, before, or before we go into let, that, let okay. me go into that. I, I definitely want to cover that, and um, uh, we have to be mindful of our time frame. But um, uh, one of the sources of optimism that we have now for how things may change here we are in our tricentennial mm -hmm. year, and uh, as my husband says, it's it, you know it's, it's 300 years of slavery and poverty and. And I often say petrochemical dominance of our, um, you know, economic development in our state to our detriment in many ways. It does bring in income to the state, but it's been an issue. So, mm -hmm. how, how how would you express your optimism about our future? So going back to the three C three C's around contracts, contacts, and capital. So contracts, we still have huge opportunities there, right? So one of the big ones um, is. Again, I'm forgetting the exact number, but over, was it $20 billion in coastal restoration money coming through the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority? Definitely a couple billion. And a couple billion for New Orleans, for Louisiana, is no, is not, is no small potatoes, right? That's a big amount for us. Is there a way that we can, can that money actually fuel our local water economy so we actually build a self-sustaining water cluster? Can that money go to local businesses? Can it go to um, to minority-owned businesses? That's one. I think that's a really big opportunity. And you see that happening. I mean, it's uh, going to take some doing to make sure it happens. Right. Is what you're saying, but that is do exactly you see it happening? I think that there are people who want to make it happen, and I think that our state as a whole has not been the most friendly or most inclusive of our local businesses. And so I think there is work to be done. But I think people see this, many people see this as an opportunity and want local businesses to be able to get those opportunities. And, and uh, going back to what you said in the very beginning of our interview, that in fact, in the be that it, it isn't so much a time of, of incredible <coughs> golden opportunities post-Katrina, yet people like you, many, many young, enthusiastic people who have some reason to love New Orleans, and, and we all have many reasons to love the city, but a lot of people came in here with tremendous commitment to the city that are, I, I think, very much a part of making these kind of things happen. So in that sense, the post-Katrina era is an important one in having attracted people who are going to make an effort to accomplish those three C's. Would that well, be fair to say? Or? Well, yes and no, because I think that the flip side of that that we have to be really concerned about is making sure that these new people from the outside... Don't gentrify the whole city. Or don't gentrify any part of the city. Yeah. That they are working in alliance with the groups that are already here to further the goals of the people who are here. And it's not about people from the outside trying to take leadership of... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's but I have to say, having partnership. Yeah, but having having lived here for forty years, I see a distinct change, mm -hmm. in the sense that there is a, there's um, uh, more of a commitment 
more of a um, realization mm -hmm. of the issues that you're discussing right now. Right. It comes, I mean, Mark Morial is here, is, is lifelong New Orleanian, so when you hear it come from him, but there, you're now hearing a chorus mm -hmm. that he didn't have maybe mm -hmm. um, 10 years ago. So, so I think that's we kind just of what I'm to, saying. Well, I think we just have to also look at the data at the same time. So I think many people have the feeling that, that you know, these, that all the new people, you know, are bringing commitment and it's a positive thing. And I think in many ways it is a positive thing. But when we look at the data and we see things actually from a data perspective getting worse, we have to, I think, question, right. well, what, were these people so with the yin and the yang, the, right? the yin is overwhelming the yang to some extent. Let's go back to mm -hmm. the um, propeller and, okay. and the other initiatives that you are specifically engaged in that are going to affect all this. So, uh, so we were talking about yeah. So another piece of our work is around policy and advocacy. So our organization takes a sector-based approach. So we have five kind of areas of interest. They are water, food health, education, and our um, immediate surrounding neighborhood, which is the South Broad Commercial Corridor. So those are the five areas where we run accelerator programs, which means that we uh, find startup businesses or existing businesses if they're in the growth mode, and we help, um, you know, for startups, we help get them to proof of concept, to get their pilot, their first customers for people in the growth. We help them get to the next stage of their business, getting more financing, getting their second site, doing expansions. So that's what we provide in those five areas. And within each of the five areas, we see opportunities, policy opportunities, to even the playing field. And so within water, we were talking about CPRA. So that's one of our advocacy objectives is around shifting procurement to, to more local businesses in the water, in the water um, area. Within food, um, it's the same thing. We, we believe that shifting um, the purchasing uh, of our anchor institutions, our hospitals, our universities, to include to buying from local farms um, and other pr local food producers could really make a big difference as well. Uh, within the education sector, it's around um, working with our charter schools as institutions and then with our um, the, uh, different transportation. And then in health, it's around um, working with some of the hospitals around how they um, how they're how they're seeing equity in their own institutions. So these are um, specific education? policy and um, education working on transportation. Mm -hmm. And neighborhood. And neighborhood, yeah. So neighborhood, we work with the um, we have a, a business kind of coalition that we've been helping to provide administrative support for in order to get more resources for that um, for that neighborhood. So from, that's on the policy side. Mm -hmm. Let me let me ask you, um, what drives you, Andrea? What why are you so committed to this? Well, I believe my future, like I believe my future is tied up in all of this. So a lot we've been talking about. Uh, we've been talking a lot about inequities and specifically racial inequities, um, and and frankly, I don't want to live in a world where these kinds of inequities exist. It impacts me in a very personal way, and this is not the world I want to live in. And 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 what brought you to that position? I mean, what tell me something about how you were raised, what you studied, what what led you, what what brought you here? So. <clears throat> So I was um, I was brought up in Los Angeles. That's where I, I was. I grew up in Los Angeles, and my parents are both from Taiwan, so they're immigrants. Um, and and growing up, it was 
you know, as an Asian American in the country, it's, I mean, you see it around you, and it's not something that you typically, I mean, I don't think any child really, you know, grows up wanting to be in a world where things just aren't very fair. And so I think that's a lot of what drives me. How about as a woman? Well, I see it every day still, and it's, um, and it's terrible. And you see the people around you suffering, and it's, it's depressing. But you keep going. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, there's the existentialist in you. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I often say that existentialism is my faith. <laughs> what would you like to accomplish in this coming year? And we're closing in on the end of our time. <laughs> I, we could obviously go on for another hour or two, but we're closing in on um, uh, our time frame. So t- tell me, um, what, what's, what's your, um, if you were to say it in a sort of mission statement, um, um, element, how would you say what you uh, hope to accomplish in this coming year? And then uh, maybe take, take me 10 years forward and just very briefly tell me where do you want to see yourself come out. So I think a lot of the work that we're doing, I think there's a personal and, you know, a propeller component, but I think the work that we're doing is emergent. We've been using that word quite a bit in many ways, and so it's hard to know exactly how things will land. We, at a general level, we hope to influence um, and shift people's mindsets and and try to plant seeds where we can so that people, um, ourselves included, will you know, either start taking actions they haven't before to tackle disparities, to speak up in ways they haven't before, they hadn't before, um, use their resources, expand their networks. So I know that sounds very broad and we actually have a very specific strategy in terms of the sectors that we're working in, but it's something, it's something personal that I'm, I'm trying to do in my own life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 10 years, I am hopeful that we will have closed some of this. The, you know, the statistics that I mentioned before, that the 2% of total business receipts, I mean, couldn't we get to 15? Right? We know that wouldn't be anywhere close to being proportionate, but, um, you know, I'd like us to have made some progress, and I definitely don't want us going the other, in the other direction, which is actually where we are headed right now. Did we leave out anything that you want to capture and share with our listeners? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here.